0: This is The Show with Cannon Brown. It was just, a lot of it was experimental, and, and, and a lot of people knew that, but we'd, we'd all take the experiments, experiments because that was kind of, you know, other people had done similar things other ways, and I suppose pioneering in the same way that the, the guys pioneered the, the, the livestock breeding side of it, I was probably starting to pioneer some of the ways that we presented the animals, and, and yes, I learned from, I learned from some people are better than me, but on the other hand, I learned a lot of that by, just purely by experience. That last few minutes might have been a little confusing. You'd like to know who I was talking to, wouldn't you?
1: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another week of the show. I'm your host, Cannon Brown, and I don't even want to do a lot of talking for this episode. I know, I know. I like to talk in my intros. I like to fill it out with three to four minutes to just jibber-jabber. But I really want to get you guys to this episode. I've got a great guest. His name is Andy Frazier. He's got a rich history in this industry. And the reason why it's different is because he lives overseas. He's from the UK. He's a gosh dang Brit, okay? We're Yankees compared to him. We are. It is what it is, okay? But his story is very compelling. It's it's very unique. It's very original at least for me, at least for you guys. I don't know if it's original to his side of things, uh, but for me as, as a listener, I was I was very intent to just listen to his story the whole time. I mean, sometimes I would ask him questions, but I let him just go. I let him go. Um, and I, I feel comfortable letting guests do that. You know, you got you to gotta just let people kind of get out there, and if they're going to talk, they're going to talk. And Andy's a great guest. He's also a podcast host. He hosts the podcast called Top Lines and Tails. Great, great content there. If you want to know the history or origins of some of your favorite breeds of cattle, some of your uh, some of the breeds of sheep that you've heard about, go look at that podcast, Top Lines and Tales. Uh, very, very good. Uh, and just uh, again, another perspective on this industry that is unique to our story over here in the States. Andy, uh, I hope, is going to be a reoccurring guest on the podcast. I'm going to be a reoccurring listener to his podcast. Uh, Show him some love. Uh, Go, uh, I don't know if you can even get on the Top Lines and Tales page, but I'm sure if you request to get on, go to Facebook, go to Top Lines and Tales. You'll see great old historical pictures uh, of cattle sheep hogs in the UK it's 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 a great page and we talk about it a little bit in this episode look at that I, I I'm just talking too much and I told you guys I was going to get you to the episode and here I am rambling about the episode not letting you get to the episode so let's do it that's enough of me talking Mr. Andy Fraser. you're safer
0: here than any place else now just lock yourself in and keep quiet
1: so how I came to figure out your page was through, uh, Bob Hugh. Okay. Um, and I reached out to him on Facebook cause I love his page. Um, I love that he shares all that kind of history that no one kind of else shares on Facebook or any social media. And I reached out to him one day and I was like, where can I find more of this? hmm and he invited me to the Top Lines and Tails Facebook page, Okey-doke. where I soon found um, a persistent poster, Andy Fraser. <laughs> um, you are you are the most active post, did you start that
0: Facebook page? Yeah, I started the whole Top Lines and Tails thing so is my baby, yeah, I started that.
1: That's incredible, I mean, and I know it covers usually, or, or mostly, uh, primarily, UK history, European show history. Um, But from an American looking at that, I'm like, gosh, dang, that's so cool. Uh, Just to see all that history and see those people just 20 years ago, it looks so different
0: culturally Mm -hmm. uh, to now absolutely and and um bob's I, I came across Bob purely by accident as well, just because he'd been chatting to somebody that I know in, in the cattle world, and then Bob and I became friends in fact, Bob and I have had a a long messenger conversation this afternoon because he's doing some research on some stuff in in Brittany he's saying well these guys in Wales and there's these cows in in Fife in Scotland. you think those guys are related it's like you know the cattle are related just like Bob there. A ten hours drive apart, you know, and that in in UK terms, that's like fucking the other end of the world. So, um <laughs> so Bob, Bob's saying, okay, well, t- you know, these guys have come up with this, this, I don't know, this word for, I don't know what it means. So I've gone back and said, well, in Scottish it means that bit, and in Welsh it means that bit. So Bob's, I've helped Bob a little bit, but he's doing a lot more research and doing a lot more books. But likewise, um, you know, Bob's helped me in a hell of a way, and we've had some great podcasts. Um, with him not knowing what I was getting when I first spoke to him, some great podcasts, which I think we started um, with, the, with the the Chicago Stockyards and mm. uh, and me, to, me doing some research on that and Bob doing some research on that. And then, yeah, we've done eight to 10 podcasts together and Bob's good. Okay, Andy, I'm happy to have you on the podcast today. You
1: are the second international guest I've ever had. Uh, I've had an Australian on before, Uh, never had a a UK resident. Now, you're from Worcester? Worcester. Is is that how you say it? Worcester.
0: You have one of those in in, in the States as well. I think in Massachusetts, Worcester. It's pronounced Worcester, Massachusetts. Where Worcester, with the original Worcester. You guys are the imposters on that
1: one. Well, of course. It's (laughs) like... uh, we have a bunch of those, don't we? You do, yeah. Uh, we've got a lot of cities na-
0: named after old older cities in England. Quite <laughs> We're just copying. We... <laughs> Quite a few, but tell you, you you have a Birmingham in Alabama, which is about ten times the size of our Birmingham <laughs> in England. So uh, you guys you, you took it and grew it and made it better. <laughs> Culturally,
1: very different. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> Birmingham, Alabama. Now you're going. Uh, this is a little off topic, but you're coming to New York here pretty soon. Is, was that before the travel restrictions? Yeah, uh, went into place, or
0: yeah, we were we were planning. I've got a few pals around and about there, and, and a good friend who's a journalist in. Um, in uh, Washington, an uh, agricultural journalist over there, and I was going to catch up with him, and, and we were supposed to be going to see uh, Billy Joel in Madison Square Gardens. But uh, the way things are at the moment, with the whole COVID restrictions and 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 the chances of lockdown, and and the chances are, if we got to New York, we'd probably get locked down and wouldn't get back, which is not a bad thing, but uh, depends how long that carries on. When I'm stuck in a in a hotel, so we've we've canned it, unfortunately. But uh, I'll be over there again when when next time he gets to play uh, Billy Joel. He's, he's getting on now; he's older than me, and. Uh, He's getting on a little bit so uh, hopefully we'll get to see him singing away in madison square next time i'm there that's like the that's the mecca to see billy joel is in madison square garden right
1: yeah i mean that's where you want to see him it's like renamed billy joel back garden i think yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly gosh dang that'd be a hell of a concert honestly indeed now you um so you started showing cattle at uh, 13 years old okay had it been in your family before? With, did your parents show livestock? Were they agriculturally motivated by any means?
0: My my grandfather was was it uh, showed chickens. Now I know absolutely fuck all about chickens. Grand, grandfather showed something called a, a white. Are we okay to swear on this podcast? You can edit it anyways.
1: Andy, you are completely okay to swear on this, <laughs> and it sounds better coming with your accent too. <laughs> I won't because it sounds vulgar, but if you say it, it sounds really good.
0: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> So my my grandfather started showing chickens in the 1930s. He'd been involved in the First World War, and like some of these old guys, I didn't really talk about it, but he was an entrepreneur and a really intelligent guy and made a lot of money in, in farming with soft fruit and various things. But he showed chickens in the 1930s, and he won the British or the United Kingdom laying trials, which sounds a sexual event, but it's not. It's something to do with chickens. And and he... he he won that from 1931 to 1935. I think he won it three times in four years, and these big gold medals that uh, I remember my granny wearing on on a bracelet round her wrist, and, and at his at the old farmhouse where he was, they had massive silver cups on on the on the salvers on the on the sideboard, and grandfather had done that and been there and done that, I suppose, and then carried on in farming um, with various things, and by the time I I came into to the fray, we were. Running a lot of livestock, a lot of a lot of cattle and and sheep, but showing re- wasn't really in in the in in the in the um, economy, I suppose, and it wasn't in the budget. Grandfather was too busy you know, writing everything down and mathematically recording everything, and and uh, doing well with his stock. So uh, it it wasn't something that was it was my father did put it that way. It was it was it was new to me, um, and at 13 years old, as I mentioned, uh, as you mentioned, rather my. Uh, my mother wasn't uh, how can I say this without being rude to my poor old ma, uh, she wasn't the greatest mother in the world. Um, she, uh, she, if, if she had been a, a stock ewe or a stock heifer, you'd have probably sold her on. I don't think she was, a, <laughs> I think she should have been allowed to breed. Anyway, she'd have been cold. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my, my dear old ma um, married into into the farming fraternity and uh was expected to get her hands dirty which wasn't something she'd been used to and uh, when children came along she didn't really like them she admit, open, openly admitted that she didn't uh, she didn't like children which is kind of a kind of an issue i suppose growing up and uh, so rightfully so she sent me to boarding school when i was 11 and 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 um it wasn't just me she didn't like she she sent my brother as well so we went off to boarding school so i was at the youngest of three i was at, at boarding school and at 13 years old um my father we had a, a lot of frisian uh you guys get free you know frisian is a dairy cow yeah but we we ran a lot of frisian um uh, g- barley beef um steers and then later became bulls on the farm and barley beef is basically they were fed ad lib barley from the gra- yeah. ground barley from the from pretty much the day they were born So we'd buy six week old calves and we'd fatten them we'd, we'd rear them up and then or three week old calves and we'd rear them up and then run them through the, through a unit and sell the animals at nine months old, ten months old. So we'd intensively rear these things long before that became a, a, a dirty word, I suppose. Um, but long before certainly beef uh, um, beef units were in the US as well as in, in the UK. And we'd have four or five hundred of these things in in the farm. And then some of them, one was a fairly good one. And my father would send the animals into market every week, starting with in the pen. They'd be nine months old, there'd be 20 in a pen. And then the... Oldest one will be 11 months old and all that will be recorded. So he got one particularly good one and he said, well, why don't we take this to uh, to uh, an agricultural show? The show being the um, the Birmingham Fat Stock Show, which was probably the second biggest um, fat stock show. Or life, fat stock show, they call them prime stock shows now. and are not allowed to say fat stock. I don't know what you guys call them, but uh, you're not, nobody's allowed to mention fat anymore for <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> obvious reasons, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we—I think he. We, I suppose my very first show. He. He'd, I've got a photograph of, of myself here um, somewhere, and he'd exhibited at the Kidderminster. Uh, so the local market uh, auction market um, would have every year at the end of the year. Bearing in mind, we were sending probably ten, fifteen cattle every week into the auction market, and maybe a hundred pigs and thirty, forty sheep, and so they'd have the the auction the the fat stock show at the end of the year in in early december and then they get some old butcher to judge and there's a picture of me with an with a charolet cross animal so not one of our freedoms but a charolet cross animal Mm. in 1967 and i'm just a boy and the animal had stood on my toe and i can remember it to this day and this big butcher standing there and the animal stood on my toe and i was crying my eyes at it's seven eight years old and um the butcher saying uh how heavy is it <laughs> and i thought that like, you sarcastic old bastard that's not <laughs> <laughs> but i told him exactly how heavy it was and, and i think at that date it probably got me the bug for showing and, and then yes at 13 I, we, we took this frisian steer to the birmingham fat stock show and uh, which i assumed would be a bit like the local one in our market and i got there and i realized that the this whole world of showing was something totally totally different and uh yeah, I took to it straight away. I absolutely took to it. I fell in love with it, and uh, I never looked back really.
1: Yeah. Now, when you're when you're sent to a boarding school, um, does that mean you're you're away from home, going to school? I mean, how are you uh, like raising the livestock? Are are you able to come home? I, we don't have boarding schools over here in the states, so I'm just a little confused.
0: Okay. Excuse me. I've got a glass of wine in front of me. Oh, no. You should drink more of that wine. <laughs> I'm going to. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. a boarding school would be, I suppose, a privately paid-for school where uh, you could send your children away, boys in, in, in my case, um, to a school. Most of the of the boys in the school that I went at were, were farmers' sons, and it was a paid-for education where I'd go away. Rather than cluttering my family's feet, you'd be sent away there, and, yes, you'd stay away for three months or two months at a time um that coming back and mm-hmm. coming back in holidays and what have you go there at 11 years old and come back home when you're 18 years old and that's that that's a, a paid for education and it still goes on and I mean I, I sent my sons to to not the same school but a, a similar school but yes I wasn't so I wasn't coming back I, as far as I'm concerned I was concerned I was always going to be a farmer and despite they taught me about mathematics and chemistry and sexual education and all the other things that one needs to learn when you're 11 years old um, we we had a there was as an aside there was an, a, a, um, one of the, the curriculums was uh, agricultural science so myself and all my pals signed up for this thing and we were taught by this guy called dr something or other we called him dr penis i'm sure his real name wasn't dr penis <laughs> and uh he was going to teach us about agricultural science Well, we all knew more about agricultural science in our big toe than this guy knew about it so uh, that was quite a, <laughs> a fun <laughs> a fun class when we when we were deciding we, we'd all stand up and, and and whatever he said we'd just tell him that wasn't right And i'm telling a sheep maybe i'm saying sheep live till they were you know 10 years old i said so, well, you try that at our place they all die when they're 5 you know cuz and it, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah my 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 days they're pampered maybe exactly my days at boarding school were, were um they they were there supposedly to learn and have fun really and i played rug- rugby you guys don't play rugby over there um i played rugby and it sort of hardened you up and but yes i would come home on the odd weekend and being over through the through the, the um the The holiday period seen this animal that was that was being groomed by the uh, cattleman at the time he was sort of grooming this animal up, but didn't really know what he was doing and the, the animal had horns and it was it was, a, it, was a, it was a it was a hell of a thing to be it was horrible and so he turned up at this event and he turned up with this animal and then i was let, i got the day off well a couple of days off board in school i think I came home on the Saturday of the weekend and the show was on the Sunday and then I was expecting to go back to school on the Sunday night. Um, And my father had phoned my headmaster at school and said, well, can the boy have a a couple of days off because it's an education for him? And so I got left at this, but the the cattleman, everybody else went home and I got left at this boarding school with with it, sleeping on a bale of straw. Sorry, I got left at this cattle show, sleeping on a, a bale of straw besides this animal, which we'd called Fred for whatever reason, and sleeping alongside Fred at 13 years old. And I think my father expected the next day when he came back that I'd still sort of be sitting there fairly meek along this animal. And by that time, I'd gone all round the place and gone to meet all the other stockmen. And at, at thirteen years old, I'm tugging at the shirt tails and asking them, you know, how this thing works and how that works and and uh, and and how this this job that this sh- sh- cattle showing world works. And I just saw I saw these guys that could groom these animals miraculously and and these beautifully turned out beasts. And I was hopelessly embarrassed by fred who was a big fat specimen of a Frisian steer <laughs> and uh and um eventually you know he came last in his class as he rightly should and and uh i just got the bug for that and then the following year I, I i he's still at school to be fair the following year in my holidays i'd groomed another one of our specimens of our of our animals out of the farmyard if you like to go back there and this time it was sort of fred mark two and it was it was uh it was dehorned and and um, properly turned out and i think it it won its class and in, in the friesian section and but, I, but then i was hooked and that was for me i was always gonna i was always gonna show cattle and uh, nothing else i wanted to do i didn't work out how i yeah. didn't know how i was going to do it didn't know where or, or who or what was i just knew that was something that was always going to be in my life and uh, at canon it has been and it always will be no there's something about um and this i think
1: you share this story with a lot of kids that show livestock there's something about going to your first show maybe getting your butt kicked, but you, you learn a lot. And then you come back that next year and, and maybe you win that class when you win your class, or maybe you're two spots above where you were last year, but you're, it happens in a lot of kids where they're like, wait, if I work a little harder, I can actually see a difference in where my animal is going to end up in class. And if I learn a little more, I can, I can feed it better. or I can fit it better, groom it better, whatever. Um, I think that's very important to it. A new livestock shower is is getting to see that improvement early on.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right, and it's it's extremely important that we encourage the the youngsters. Um, Certainly in the UK, the the, the agriculture is quite a closed shop. Where where, did I say a closed shop? I meant. So sort of like a, a closed shop where it's very difficult for youngsters out with agriculture to get in there, and it's difficult for the guys within the industry to promote out with their industry to find these young guys. And um, mm-hmm. unfortunately, we have we have an um, organisation uh, in in the uk called uh, young farmers movement and i suppose that's kind of similar to your 4-h and and the other movements you have yeah but we have that organization where youngsters in their local village at a very low level really in in some of the villages in scotland there might be 500 people live in the village and they'll have a young farmers group where they might have to go to the next town to do that and years ago there would more be more and more of them now they're less but to bring these youngsters in at that level is a brilliant thing, but that brings them in, and, and within that that organisation, they do have the skills that some of the other guys, that maybe their fathers and their grandfathers have been in that business. But realistically, to to get the youngsters in, yeah, you're right. To, to rock up at a show with an animal that, that you know nothing about, I tell you what, that, that there's there's no bigger learning curve on this earth, and and to get your ass kicked, and then uh, and then to come back the next year and go, you know what, I'm going to beat you guys, and and uh, I think mm-hmm. that, that that's that's the drive that. Uh, that everybody in life probably has, or, or people in life who want to strive has, and certainly your, your guys in the livestock world, all of them well, should should learn from that level and should encourage people to go in at that level and, and hopefully they all succeed later down the line.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that you said that, that it's kind of like a closed shop over there and, and people in the industry are in the industry and people on the outside find it hard to learn more uh, or be invited in or even want in. And there... You guys have that uh, young farmers movement. Uh, what do you? Is there any other way that you think is a good way to get people more involved, especially in the UK and in the livestock industry? Is there is there a way to do it to where you can market it to young people without uh, clubs or something like that? I mean, is there a way to get it in the school system, uh, like we have over here in the states?
0: no I don't think it's I don't think generally for all I said earlier on we did agricultural science at our school it's not something that's on a a general curriculum but I do believe there is um, there are a lot of uh, um, small farms petting farms if you like where people can go and See, mm. see a sheep or a goat or a, a cow, what have you, and, and whatever, farmers set that up or, or small farmers have set that up to make money, good luck to them, and invite the people in. And there are those ways there where the school will take maybe a whole trip full of kids and they'll all go there, but uh, half of them will be interested, to buy, interested in buying a packet of cigarettes to smoke behind the behind their shed. <laughs> they're, it's, it, they're not all going there. The geography field trip isn't, isn't generally going to encourage everybody, but it's, it's, hopefully on those trips there will be some people that... Uh, that we'll learn a little bit, uh, or that we'll take encouragement from from that. But from, yeah, in our days, you 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 would head off to the agricultural shows. We'd go to the Three Counties Show is a big show near near from where I'm I'm from in Middle England, and we'd go there every year on a school trip. And you'd have a quick look in the cowshed and then run off to everywhere else. There was no. No, it's very, it's very difficult, and it will be, it, and it's getting worse because we're getting a very much anti livestock uh, movement in in movement isn't the right word. We've got an anti livestock lobby, I think, within the UK and the world uh, that uh, yeah. the vegans and whatever that they don't they don't want to see those animals. They, you'd like them to go and see those animals and say, "Come along, this is a nice animal, and uh, you're going to eat it next week." And 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 it's a very hard lesson for people to learn when they believe that they're. That all the beef comes from from the supermarket, and and they'd rather not eat it. I think if they see the animals, yeah. and the, the, the understanding is very, it, it's a very hard, it's a hard bridge to to cross, Canon, and uh, I don't see how we we any of us are doing any good to 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 make that any better. To be honest, well, I'm working on it. So
1: okay. <laughs> not really, but um, I like you said, it's a hard task, and the the person that figures it out is going to be. Uh, an incredible advocate to the agriculture and livestock industry. Um, But it's interesting that you say that, especially in the UK. I mean, I remember reading uh, a quote by Winston Churchill. uh, and I want to say it was like in the 1920s or 30s, where he was talking about lab-produced meat. And he was talking about, and I don't have the quote pulled up here, uh, but he was like, we have to get away from this absurdity of killing one chicken to feed everybody when you can just... Uh, one day we'll be able to grow it in the lab. And I thought that was uh, pretty futuristic of him to say that, uh, obviously. But um, it's crazy that even back then, uh, culturally, they were looking for other ways around
0: just using chickens or sheep or, or cattle, you know? I find that fascinating that if, that if that is a true quote, that's something I've never heard. And I will go... A little bit onto that route with with the, the the false meat, as it were, and one because back then, uh, in in the nineteen thirties, it was very difficult to see how the nations could manage to produce enough food to feed themselves. So that would be a problem back then. Was to, to grow false meat was was about. Have I just turned you off, a false meat was was about producing enough meat and extra because we hadn't got enough of it um so the 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 idea of producing false meat or extra meat would have been because we didn't have enough um meat to feed ourselves i don't think it was with him was i don't think he started a vegan movement in any way i'd be very surprised if he did (laughs) if he did anyway but going on to the 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 false meat side of it there is a, a a massive um business behind the idea of growing meat in in warehouses in in areas and i've discussed this with my pal who's in Washington on your side and he's involved in, in as well as agriculture he does a lot of stuff within within the American government or within the American parliament to say and he, he said there's this mass. In fact, when I got him to quote it back on a podcast, he denied saying. He said, no, "I can't say that," uh, so I won't say his name when Uh <laughs> But he said there's massive warehouses being built out in in the in areas where they have no, um, as long as they've got water, they and, and they have no electric because it's all solar powered, and they can build these warehouses. All they need is, is running water to produce this. This beef and not just by a few packs on the supermarket, but in hundreds and hundreds of thousands of tons. And uh, a lot of that business is being backed by the the, the national or, or the, the multimedia global businesses like Microsoft and, the, and these guys putting money into that because they see that that's going to be the future. But that's about producing meat that is not meat. And I don't understand why. In where we sit in the world at the moment, why if you don't want to eat meat, that's great. If you don't eat meat, that's fine. Don't have a problem with that. Go and eat whatever you want to eat. If you don't eat vegan, you don't want to eat drink milk, go and do that. That's fine. But why, if you don't want to eat meat, why do you want to eat something that uh, looks and tastes like meat? Because that defies all the logic, as far as I'm concerned, about not eating meat in the first place. So I really don't get exactly. It. I don't get that. I don't get that. But that's where yeah. that's where we're going. Unfortunately. Yeah, I I found the quote <clears throat> so. Yeah.
1: And this is on the Smithsonian Magazine, so I think this is a decent um, source. Mm. He says, with a greater knowledge of what are called hormones, i.e. the chemical messengers in our blood, it will be possible to control growth. We shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the chicken or wing by growing these parts separately under a suitable medium. Okay. Okay. That's wild. I mean, it, it, especially for, it, it was 1931 when he wrote that. And like you said, they were trying to figure out ways to feed the entire population at that point. I mean, there, there was a lot of scarcity uh, in the 1930s, uh, especially from, I mean, that was when the Great Depression was in full swing, right? I mean, that that's...
0: Absolutely, that hit
1: a couple of years before. So absolutely, then uh, they he, thought
0: they thought we were going to be in in in, in a bankrupt um, world, and then of course later on, when they thought we were going to blow the world to fucking pieces, so uh, they, they we wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't have anything to to be able to produce. I understand where where he's coming from there on on that, on that score. I guess that's wild, though, I, and that's a little
1: tangent, I guess. But
0: it, it, um, but just before we, we we head off get off from that. Uh, can. And I, I in, in the podcast that I run, and, I, and we're podcaster to podcaster here, the podcast that I run, we study a lot of the history of, we're studying a lot of the history of some of the original um, breeds of cattle, in, in in a lot of them originating from you know, Britain, the UK, and some of these animals going back into the medieval times a thousand years ago. But there are great people within that industry who have been... Um, Pioneers by taking what was an ordinary draft animal and then turning that into an animal that can produce beef uh, and 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 milk or whatever it was that, that we were needed and and you have to look at those guys and go well they're saying exactly the same as Churchill did he's just looking a little bit further but they're saying the same as the quote you just said by what we had back then was a, a cow that would play the fields now we want to turn that into a to an animal that actually will will produce us some beef that will will sustain uh, sustain the the, the hungry nation. So I suppose the same thing Churchill's taken a little bit further by adding a bit of scientific to it, but it's still the same principle that evolution will tell us that we need to use. We need to be better at producing what we do.
1: I guess that is true. I mean, that's most people don't realize that mainly they're just they were used for labor and plowing up fields. And it, it took a turn to where, oh, we don't need these animals for labor anymore. But we can use them solely for production. Mm-hmm. That's that is an interesting turn that I don't think anyone really thinks about. Certainly, something
0: uh, c- certainly something that we, that we've certainly as I wouldn't say discussed uncovered, but uh, discussed in the fact that the um, you yeah, know the, the horse. The draft horse came along, and, and the likes of Robert Bakewell and these guys who were who were developing um, oxen into beef at the same time were developing the, the draft horse that would then become the animal that took place of of the of the cow because it's a a lot more efficient of of running hmm. up of moving up and down and obviously the the tractor and everything that came after that. But I mean, the draft horse came in to replace the cow, and the cow then went on for it to have a different role to produce beef.
1: Yeah. And, uh, that podcast that you just mentioned is called top lines and tails, mm-hmm. uh, hosted by you. Um, so I encourage everyone listening to go check that out. I've listened to a bunch of episodes, uh, since finding the top lines and tails, Facebook page. Um, I think is incredible. I mean, you're talking with these producers that, uh, maybe they own the original herd or they've, uh, they've. They know the what the original herd stems from, or what their herd stems from. It's it's really interesting to figure out the uh, the background behind all these old herds of cattle and, and these sheep breeds. You, you've done these sheep breeds as well. Um,
0: it's a lot of history in that podcast that you have. It's a lot of work, Canon, is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But it's 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 been fascinating for me, who've been involved in in the livestock industry all of my days. And yeah, I'm just sixty this year to to. To um, not not down there with you youngsters, but to to learn uh, from guys a lot older than me, uh, but people who have been involved in each of those those breeds and and long before that, where the people have found me history books that I wouldn't have found and found me documentation that I wouldn't have seen and photographs that uncovered from somebody's grandfather's closet. So to find all this stuff, we we're trying to. Bit by bit, pieced together the yeah, the history of each one of those breeds in a, in a lineage, so, so right from the the beginning to to where they are now, and then back that up with with photographs of, of you know, photographic evidence, if you like, of those. And it's been it's been fantastic. The, the The podcast, to be fair, isn't always about that. It's some of that can be quite dull and boring, apart from to the purists. But uh, we do other things on there as well. But we chat to modern day producers and 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 uh, sometimes we have fun as well.
1: Yeah. Now you you just said you're you're 60 this year. Mm-hmm. Congratulations! Thank you. Um, you've had a long life in this industry since you were 13, uh, and you stayed continuously hungry in this industry. It seems like I mean you you've bought and or you've started and sold businesses within the industry, uh, and at an early age. Uh, we'll start with your grooming business. Now t- tell me how you started a grooming business uh, and wasn't it the first one of its kind?
0: It was, it was. I mean, partly because with my love of showing livestock at 13, by the time I got to 25 and 6, I wasn't particularly getting on with my father and my brother on the farm, and I wanted to sort of go more down the pedigree route, and and I kind of... By that time, the pigs weren't making money anymore. and We'd had a thousand pigs on the farm at one time, and and, and the um, and the cattle. Went. The, the job had changed. The, the, it, there was evolution very fast in in the business in the 80s, I suppose. And I just I was showing my own cattle for fun, winning my program, my, my, winning my classes. Excuse me, winning my classes, winning my shows, and buying cattle here, there, and and not making any money at it, such. But uh, people would start asking me oh, who wh- what products do you use and yeah, you're winning the shows what what clippers do you use you know and where do you get the, you know, the 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 rest of your stuff so i realized there was an open market for somebody to start supplying that so yeah I was kind of a i was a, i was a pioneer i just went i left i left the farm in 19 get through i'm good, left the farm in 1989 so i would be 26 27 i just got married i got a young son um, it probably wasn't a good time to do it, um, and I, I I left the farm and just set up on my own. Rented a bungalow off my father-in-law and, and started buying some grooming equipment. And at the same time, I had people would send animals to me to be groomed for the series. Guys that lived out with the country or out with the area, and they'd send animals to me, and I'd feed and groom them sort of through through the season, and then take them from show to show. And it was just quite unheard of back then, I think. And um, yes, the grooming equipment side of it, I couldn't find products that i needed i so i developed a few and then i went off to i realized that the most of the long before the social social media side of it the internet even um i went off to the states and uh, to canada and had a mooch around to see how those guys did it and i came back with my with my eyes opened a little bit and realized there are products out there that i could bring in and import for the for the right money and set myself up as, as a product as a company called afcs andy fraser's grooming services very andy fraser's cattle services excuse me sorry try that again afcs so that's andy fraser's cattle Services. a fairly <laughs> <laughs> fairly corny acronym but and um i would i i got myself an exhibition unit together and i would i had a, a, one girl i employed two three girls at one time and and I, I would they would go to the shows with me and i'd park the trailer up and they would be they would sort of sell all the products over over the counter in there while I was out at the back grooming the cows, grooming various animals for various people. And it became a, a sustainable business, should I say. And there's a lot, yeah. a lot of people out there doing that now. But, yeah, I was the first of the kind in the UK and probably there weren't many. There were one or two in the UK. John Patterson was the one that uh, that I know. Sorry, in the US, rather, John Patterson was one of the ones that uh, that I knew of that had his sort of catalogue and his grooming products and... Um, Now there's lots of them and it's it's a a regular business, but back then it was very hard to get different products that you needed and we would all try things, you know, going back the way the old guys, and I admired them so much, the old guys that were winning Smithfield and, and Perth bull sales going back into the 30s, 40s, 50s. I mean, I didn't go back that far, obviously, but they would be using products like creosote and arsenic and all these concoctions they'd mix up in their shed and 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 the, the some of the feed that they put into the animals you wouldn't dream of doing it now because it would kill them but uh, arsenic uh, arsenic indeed there's a lot of arsenic <laughs> jesus a lot of arsenic was used regularly especially on the black cattle because it would grow hair and it would uh, keep the hair black but uh, you had to be ever ever so careful and, and and there's a lot of stories where people have fed them too much and the, the next morning and an animal was uh, was kept cope that's a scottish expression it was upside down with its feet in the air It's probably you know it but uh, okay you yeah. <laughs> got it <laughs> gosh we hear about a lot of supplements nowadays mm-hmm. but
1: uh never heard about one as bad as arsenic mm-hmm. oh gosh that's crazy <laughs> but i guess that does make sense i mean there's some properties of everything that helps out um uh, different parts of the animal but it's it is a poison i guess so um, we used, used to use God, we used to
0: use camphor for for setting the the wool in sheep as well. And again, that's another product that's been banned for years now. But uh, uh, yeah, that was that was. I actually came up with that 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 product for camphor, and you spray that in the wool of the sheep, and it really would tighten in in the staple in in the wool and uh, hmm. and tighten them up. You know, so it's. But you learn these yeah. things as you go, and, and uh, I, I had a lot of interesting conversations with a lot of scientific people. And for all I didn't listen in chemistry when I was at school, when I spoke to some of these scientific people, they told me all these things, You know, these, these, some of these products could do various things. So I just experimented and I would make a product and sell it to somebody and they'd say, that's great. Or, you yeah, know, that shit, we'll try another one. Or, Jesus, my animal was white, now you've turned it black. Or the other way around. So. <laughs> to, it was, it was, it was a, a suck it in the sea, I think.
1: Yeah. No, that's fun though that you that you were able to experiment, especially with your own business. Uh, when you're, uh, when you go over to um, Canada, uh, or whether you went down to Australia, uh, when you went to these uh, outside places, you said that it opened your eyes a little bit. What, what were they doing that was so
0: different uh, from your neck of the woods? Oh, it, when I went to Canada, it was 10 years, at least in front of us from where we are. I know, but I know now we were 10 years behind it, should I say. And, there, there were guys there. They were growing hair in summer. That we, that was okay. It was a winter show. I, w- I was at the Toronto Winter Fair, uh, and the the way they tied the animals out, and it was all everything was all about hair, you know. Which we, for our winter shows, we wanted that that hair, and we wanted to grow it. But I was always told to get the hair on the animals. You bred it onto them. You had to breed from animals that were hairy animals, and that still comes through. To mm. be fair, if you want to breed a show beast, then breed from a breed from a hair a, 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 an animal that produces hairy calves you know that's a good start rather than trying to make it come on at the the last minute but these guys in canada in canada they were using and i remember seeing a guy they they were tying string around the legs you know, literally find uh um, bail twine around the legs and then covering it back over with hair again so they can thicken the bone out twice the size and these things it's like whoa you can't you can't get away with that uh, with us and <laughs> and there was a specialist guy the one guy i was i was helping with and they said well I, you know I said it clipping the animal out and I said, Clipping the legs is no no our specialist leg clipper clipper, he's he's coming down from Manitoba tomorrow. You know, we we'll fly this guy in because he's a specialist guy just for clipping out legs and I think. These guys just had so much more experience than 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 I had and, and that we and I'd been working by then with a lot of experienced guys on our side and the biggest Chain, game changer for all of us, I think was the dryer when the circuiteer hair dryer came in that we were using oh the other uh, blower yeah, and we were using before then we were using just uh, a little blower that we'd found in the DIY shop where you'd make one out of a hoover or something and trying to blow your animals and then this beast came in and I, I got the contract for bringing those those dryers in into the UK from from the states and uh yeah they came in at a lot of profit and we sold a lot of them and that, that did change. It changed the way a lot of us could groom the cattle, but still, with with the products, things like glue, we'd never used glue before. um, And then, of course, I came over, and rather than going buying the glue in there, I just went to the nearest carpet shop or the, the upholstery department and bought sort of 40 tins of their upholstery glue and said, here, guys, try this. So they're spraying it all on, it and it's gluing all the hair up, and they go, this is fucking brilliant. And then it's like, now what do we do? Because you, you can't get rid of it. Because you, you can't get you it you out. Get of it. <laughs> so it's like, okay. So then I'd sell them some uh, uh, gallons of oil, and they'd put the oil on there, and the oil would yeah. wash it out. It was just, a lot of it was experimental, and and, and a lot of people knew that, but we'd, we'd all take the experiments, experiments because that was kind of... Yeah, other people had done similar things other ways, and I suppose pioneering in the same way that the the guys pioneered the the, the livestock breeding side of it, I was probably starting to pioneer some of the ways that we presented the animals. And and yes, I learned from I learnt from some people better than me, but on the other hand, I learned a lot of that by just purely by experience. Yeah what is what is Lemo shine so Lemo shine would be uh, I came across this product. Um, there was a company called hams i don 't know if hams are still going hams grooming supplies they were in the, the u s in the i suppose in the middle '90s round about there and and when I was across in in um, Houston at the the rodeo, I went there to do a deal with a guy called john Patterson. and if john patterson 's listening hello john uh, he wasn 't the nicest guy that I' come to, ever gotten to meet, and I got there and uh, he just I was going over there and I wanted to order like a 20 grand's worth of, of, of products from him a container load and he just wasn't interested he was too busy doing something else and this hams com- company had a trailer around the corner and they were doing similar things so I went in to see them and the guy from hams just took us out got a good Jim I can't remember his other name and Jim took us out and yeah we had a night out and he entertained us and what have you and I ended up placing the order with him instead and a product the limo Shine was a product I came back with or an idea that I came back with sort of clear liquid but it was a a gel, I, and I to this day I can't I can't tell you what is in in it because I'd obviously have to kill you despite having to find out where you live first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and we developed this this product and I put it together in forty gallon drums and and, um, and put it out into containers and and sell it at other people and it was just a spray on gel that was sort of yellow in colour. Uh, and fetched the hair up had the right smell to it and it sort of groomer stuck the hair up and it just, it was the product that was the right product and for the time and limo shine being it was intended for limousines, and uh still is i mean limo shine now in the uk we'll maybe go on to this in a bit but i sold my grooming business uh, sort of 10 years later and the company that bought it carried on producing that stuff and as far as i know limo shine maybe not now but certainly until recently limo shine would still be the number one selling product in in europe and in talking of thousands and thousands of gallons of this stuff uh, i don't hold any any um sadly i don't hold any copyright to <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah it's still been sold and still would be the you know, would be one of, of the europe's number one grooming products lemma shine
1: mm. very interesting yeah there's it seems like you were there at the right time andy and like you you had the interest to change and evolve and the fact that you went over to Canada and saw, oh gosh, these guys are ten years ahead, we better start moving. Let's get back to the UK and start experimenting with stuff. I mean, that takes a lot of balls. That takes some guts right there. Yeah. Especially with these guys that you're just you're just experimenting products for.
0: Well, it, it is when you, thank you, you're probably right what you say, and it is when you think that I'm looking at and learning from guys who are the generation, if not two generations before me, and these guys that grew up through the 50s and the 60s when the heydays of, of, of selling short on bulls and Angus bulls for 100 or 20, 30, 50,000 pounds, these guys were the, were the top people in their trade and i suppose i was a generation below that and we're coming in with with something new and something different and the old ones would scoff us a little at a little bit but then at the same time i would try and talk to some of the old ones and say well what do you think we could do and now we're we're a generation on have we got new things that we can use and yeah it was about experimenting with that stuff and uh, and i suppose at the time when when the world was changing and, and possibly in the 80s and People were prepared prepared to listen, and uh, there was nobody else doing it. So, yeah, try these things. One or two guys would come to me. There was a guy in Aberdeen. His name was Andrew Wilson. I remember him now. And Andrew Wilson came to me and I, for the dairy side of it, and he was like the top dairy grooming guy there. And, of course, they clipped dairy cows completely different to beef cows, and I knew nothing about dairy cows and still don't to this day or want to. Um, but he can't <laughs> and andrew came along and said can you get this product called rosin Ros- and you say rosin in his aberdeen accent and i came up with some resin he said not as resin it's rosin and it's like to find these products and i'd sort of scour the world and he said they use it in canada wherever you can you get it so i find the guy that was manufacturing this stuff wherever they'd be in, in america or europe wherever it was and, and the virtual combs and the clippers and can you find these things he knew exactly what he wanted he just couldn't get them so He'd give me names and contacts, and then I would contact these guys and start shipping this stuff in. And there was a product called uh, Black Magic and Clear Magic, which I think is, again is still used to, to this day in the dairy. That's still used, the, yeah, in the dairy industry. Doc Brannan's Black Magic, and so I would ship that stuff in by you know, three, four hundred tins at a time, and and uh, supply it to these guys. At a good profit back then, the, the exchange rate from Britain to uh, to the US was was quite good, so I I don't know if I buy them. Let's say I was buying them a couple of pound of tin and I was shifting them at five or six pound of tin. It was enough to, you know, keep the keep the business going. Uh, and then With the overhead, yeah. And then we started looking at other products, but well, we could never reproduce that one. And to this day, I've never, I don't think anybody has. If you say it's still out there, then that was a product that was actually was unique in its in its in its way. And if the dairy guy – if that's what they wanted and that's what they've been used to using, then you you gave them the same. You didn't want to change those guys.
1: Yeah, true. No, I um I like your little anecdote about dairy cows. I grew up on a dairy farm and there was there's twenty five head of cows everywhere when I was growing up and I I could care less about dairy cows. Get me away from black and white. All we had were holsteins. Mm-hmm. Um I would have loved some jerseys. I, I I love the look of a good jersey dairy cow. Um but the holsteins are just ugly to me. I can't stand
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> I I grew up, if we go back to, step back to where I was talking about earlier on, on the farm when we were producing, keep um, 500 Friesian animals, and the good old British Friesian was a thick-bodied, thick, deep-bodied beast, you know, and, and when they were, they would obviously breed the, the put the Friesian bull back on, they'd keep the heifer calves, to go back into the breed, so these Friesian bull calves would come in the market, and I would go, my first job when I was 16 and, and, and left the farm, to send me into the market buying calves, and I'd buy 20 calves, 30 calves a week, uh in the, in the in the various local markets and there were a lot of guys in there that were dealers that would try and unload them onto me and they were an unsavory but unscrupulous bunch of 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 bastards, uh, the other calf dealers because you'd normally the dealer would buy all the calves and they'd sell them on to the farmers whereas i wanted to go and buy our own because we were needing quite a few and the, when the holstein came in because uh, the holstein breed for our dairy but our beef business which wasn't the same because you'd have the beef uh, the the uh, dairy short or dairy Frisian would um would fatten in in nine to ten months the Holstein was still there at, at you know 12 13 months because they wouldn't put the same fat on so same amount of meat on so I was it, was it was at that time I suppose in the what am I talking 1977 1978 that the Holstein cow was replacing the the Friesian care within the UK and these Holsteins came in and of course I couldn't you know I had to work out which ones are which and you learn, to start with. It was the size of the ears. Holstein's always had smaller ears when they were it was one of the first things I learned. And they were <laughs> and they were a lot more white. But when I mean, literally, my father would, my grandfather back then would. Tearing to me if I brought you know 10 calves home and there were two or three Holsteins in and he said I don't want those fucking things here yeah, well I might as well shoot them ne- might as well shoot them nags you'll have to keep my year, and they'll never be any fatter so so yeah I'm, yeah exactly I'm, I'm with you on the Holstein thing I'm afraid I've, I've got a lot of lovely expressions all derogatory about how about Holstein cows but I won't put them out there to you in case you have a few yeah. dairy listeners there carry on well the
1: good we'll, we'll say something good about dairy right now for the listeners mm. they're good for veal that's, <laughs> those those dairy calves are good for veal that's we'll say something good about them um now you said in your uh email that you had you had taken some belgian uh some Belgian blues to australia
0: yeah the Belgian brew breed is a is a it's a funny breed it's massive in the u k these days and and still growing obviously it came from Belgian originally, and the origins of the Belgian blue breed go back to the short cattle originally. And they'd been bred in Belgium. If you, if you guys know anything about the Belgian country, it's one of the smallest countries in, in Europe. Uh, but they have this claim to fame where they bred this extreme muscle onto their animals in in, in Belgian blue cattle, which is a double-muscled uh, breed, so big, yes. big yeah. back end. And they've also bred the Petrain pig, which is exactly the same. It has this huge muscle back end. It's all about the rump. And then the Beltex um uh, sheep which uh, to be fair in belgium they just call it the texel sheep but it's renamed the beltex uh, sheep in the uk because it is different to the texel sheep we had so the belgian guys just have this extreme muscle and all these the the, the all that they breed they have horses as well they uh what do you call the belgian horse it Begins against a p um against a p you will come to me in a second. I'm not sure. Okay. So the Belgian horse is the same they have. Uh, anyway, the Belgian blue cattle breed came into the UK in the late 80s. Uh, a few pioneering guys brought that in and it started to take off and it coincided with the time when I just left the farm and I was setting myself up on my own as, as a grooming, uh, a groom master, if you like. And, and, and so I had a, a team of, of Belgian blue cattle from a guy in the Isle of Man, which is about. 50 miles or 100 miles off the off the English west coast. Uh, so this guy couldn't ship the cattle backwards and forwards regularly. So he lairaged the cattle with me, and I'd feed them through the winter and feed them through the summer, rather, and put them ready for the shows. And and then he was at one of the agricultural shows, and some guy came along and said, well, uh, uh, the Royal Show, whatever show it was, this Australian guy had come over for a visit and seen these animals and said, Oh, well, gee, can we get some of those in Australia? And the guy said, well, there's, there's none there, as far as I know, so can we ship? So he bought... Long story short, he bought these, these five heifers and a bull there. Or he went to the farm and bought them. He said, "Right, can you ship these things to Australia for us? And we need them there by October because we want to take them to the Melbourne show." I might have my dates wrong. It might be later than that. It might be earlier actually. I think it might be. Mm. I think Melbourne show might be August. Anyway, so this could this guy ship them over in time for the Melbourne show. So they said, "Sure." So they ship these animals over, and then I was asked by this guy, "Could I go over there and?" Uh, and look after these things. And I ended up... I was going to fly with him originally, and I think it was just about the time my son was born, so I didn't actually take the flight with him, but I flew over after. I'd been at an agricultural show, I that, because I took my bag from the agricultural show that I'd been grooming some cows at with my clippers and my comb in my hand luggage and my boots on, literally oh. shit on my shoes from from, from, <laughs> from the, the the show. And so I sat there probably stinking to the guy, people next to me, daughter me. But uh, I arrived in in uh, australia and they said have you, have you been to it said on this little form you have to fill in have you been near a farm and of course i've been near a farm so they took my they had a look at my bag and they were like still hairs of of, of the last animal that i groomed on are still on my on my comb and my clippers have still got you know the the hairs on them so they took all my stuff away and fumigated it and they took my shoes and they took my trousers as well so i remember sitting in, <laughs> sitting in melbourne airport with, uh, with, with 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 in my underpants waiting for these guys to bring all the all the gear back in so Yeah, they took these these animals and they put them on a cattle station in, if you know Australia, I'm not sure, but between Victoria and New South Wales, there's a river called the. uh, uh, Excuse me, one minute. My wife is arriving with a bottle of wine. Thank you, darling. No, you're good. Thank you, darling. She's arriving with some red wine. Uh, so they took these animals, and um, tell me if I'm waffling on too much here, Canon, because uh, you've got... No, you're good. Uh,
1: I you- And I can, I, like I said, I can edit this down or whatever. It's I, I just like to hear you talk, so you're good. You cut
0: the shit out, whatever you want to so. say.
1: <laughs> so they put these animals. You just you hey you you pour
0: more of that wine and we'll just keep going all day or all night. I've got nothing else to do. I've had my dinner. I cooked it. I cooked it earlier on. <laughs> I cooked my dinner earlier on. Myself, both bourguignon as you do when you're in France, which I am at the moment. So both bourguignon Oh wow, uh, yeah, you get it. So I'm good. Um, so we t- t- took these cattle. They, these cattle were based on a cattle station uh, between uh, New South Wales and. Uh, Queensland, Victoria, New South Wales, and Victoria, and, and where the the Murray River runs through, and it was on a cattle station where the Murray River parts and then comes back together again, and there was a, a thousand acre farm in the middle of the Murray River basically, and so when they bred Herefords, and that's all they're interested in, were Herefords. So these Belgian Blues arrived, and these guys, are, what the fuck are those? You know, they. they, and they And by the time I got there, they'd been there two or three weeks and they'd got covered in mange and and they really weren't looking in a good condition. And the hair was all going horrible. It was the wrong time of year. So I thought, well, I'd shave these things. So I basically, as we do with Belgian Blues in the UK, they basically shave all the hair off them, a bit like a dairy cow, so that you can see the extreme muscle they've got underneath them. And this is alien to you guys, obviously, in the the US, and it's alien to most other people, but that's what they do with Belgium. They want to see all this muscle. So they... um, so they shaved these animals, and uh, I shaved these animals out. So these guys in the next door in there with their Hereford cattle could just see this sort of hair fluttering down in the wind. And they said, oh, I thought you were taking those to the to the Melbourne show next week. And he said, wait, you're shaving all the hair off of them. <laughs> Chopping all his hair off. And then uh, and then we put them outside, and then they got bloody in the sun, and they got sunstroke. I didn't know that they're the thinnest-skinned oh. thinnest bastards ever. So they got – no, I think we poured some, some – um, uh Spot on uh, stuff on there to kind of stop the mange and poured that on the backs and and it all burnt and they got sunshine so they all they all started to blister. It was a, it was an absolute horror show from start to finish. And then that's a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> but the first Belgian blues in Australia and so we took them to the, Mil- the, the the Melbourne show. These four heifers and a bull and the bull was a decent bull apart from the fact he he, he got a well he got one. Good leg i'd say out of three four you need four legs to on on, on a one. <laughs> He got one good one and two fairly mediocre ones, and his front one shot out at right angles and kicked everybody as they passed by yeah. it was it was an absolute bastard <clears throat> and he 's got one good one though <laughs> yeah, but they trying to sell it to these guys i didn 't you know these guys saying, well you know, a bull needs to walk a mile between serve and a cow and three miles to get some water. this thing couldn 't walk two hundred yards to the end of the field to the end of the of, of the shed rather so uh, uh, and then when he did, he kicked all the piles as far as he was getting past it. <laughs> he, just, he was just about... So talk about the hardest sales job I've ever had. I used to think I was quite good at sales, but I, I learned a lot over those couple of weeks. But they were the very first Belgian Blues who went into Australia, and that was 1989, I think. And then Australia shut the door from all animals from Europe, or certainly from Britain, because of BSE. And then this is before you're born, but from BSE... Is it before you're born? Yes, probably. <laughs> Yeah, I was born in '96. So the BSE with uh, bovine, you know what BSE will be, I'm sure. And BSE came in um, mm-hmm. as a, a disease within animals that they then stopped and putting the older animals into the food chain and all this. And it was something we didn't, we never heard about in UK per se to the general public anyway until 1993. And yet the Australians in four years earlier had already banned animals coming from the UK uh, for BSE. So. It shows that the world, and it shows how much cover up and, and, and um, we see within governmental organisations, and the, it shows that the world must have known, or somebody must have known, that this BSE was going to grow up and be a problem, and uh, and the guys in Australia shut the door four years before we recognised it as a as an, uh, openly recognised it as a problem. Uh, within the cattle industry, and but during that time, it literally was like the week after we got these Belgian blue cattle there. So this guy, uh, Ron Collins, the guy was called Ron the Con. That was he was known as. So you can, this is the guy that owned these cattle. So that kind of sums up, <laughs> sums up what we were taking in. There. And uh, he, uh, yeah, he absolutely cleaned up. Now I mean, everybody, there were people were buying the semen left, right, and centre. He put all the heifers into embryo station and uh, embryoed them all out, and and he made an absolute killing. And on, 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 on the job, but uh, I believe there aren't too many Belgian blues left in Australia anymore. And whether that's because of him, I don't know. So yeah, that was that was me in Australia with with blues a, a long time ago now.
1: Very interesting. You know, I didn't know that. Um, I didn't know that Belgium has such a fascination with like double muscled or he- heavier muscled breeds. I I didn't even know that the Pietrin hog originates from Belgium. Absolutely does. Uh, I know that it's done a lot of damage over here. Mm-hmm uh especially in our in our show pigs um but with the stress gene and everything um but yeah i didn't know
0: that all that originates from just belgium that's wild that they have that fascination yeah and, and it's not just that it's the uh, but there's also a, a a gene within the the cattle as well which is very undesirable within the the other breeds certainly within the angus cattle in in, in the uk that uh, these guys don't want so yeah that muscle gene it would put extra growth. It'll put extra um, weight into animals, but uh, it's it's muscled meat that uh, is maybe not uh, tantamount to eating quality. And I can see that being absolutely against everything that uh, that you guys stand for in the U.S. and and a lot of people do in in the in the beef industry with it around the world. But uh, there's still a massive market for for muscled animals, both in sheep, cattle, and pigs uh, in the U.K. Oh, for sure. Um, okay, so tell me uh, tell
1: me about the Smithfield show it's 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 a show that I see often um, documented on your top lines and tails Facebook page uh, a lot of pictures. I know nothing about this show, but it seems very very important
0: in your neck of the woods it's 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 massively important. it is the mecca It was the mecca for uh, the cattle showman the world over i would say including the us the smithfield show dated back to 1897 1898. i think was its first show held in london in the right in the center of london and year on year all the best animals within the uk and europe going back the way would go to compete just purely a fat stock show not about breeding animals not about not about dairy animals just purely about uh, fat animals or, or, or um, meat animals, market animals, uh, yeah, cattle, yeah. sheep, and, and pigs. And the show ran on and on, and, and it became by the, the the turn of the certainly by the 1900s, it was it was the massive show to breed, and all the breeds would want to the show to win rather, and all the breeds would want to have their own animals that sort are of winning that show because it was there were massive trophies and 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 what have you. And the show moved into Earls Court Exhibition uh, Hall, which was in the middle of London in, in the nineteen twenties, um, this big dome of, of a building that would house um, four, or five hundred cattle, maybe, which is not big by cattle show standards, but four or five hundred of the best cattle in the country, you know, four or five hundred of the best sheep and the pigs in the country as well, and then it would be the rest of it would be full of tractors and, and machinery, and it would be just the centerpiece of the show, and the fact it was held in the winter would attract a lot of farmers because they weren't doing much else. The Smithfield show became the mecca, really, of all the shows, all the people to go to. And the fact it was in the centre of London, farmers, and I know the same would have been in Chicago and and, and maybe still is in the likes of Louisville, I've not been, but where farmers would come into the centre of town where they'd never really been to town before and they'd come to town and their wives would go shopping up the town and they'd come in and spend a day. And the show went on for four or five days. But from a... Livestock point of view, it it was just the one to win. It was and, and each of the when the animals won that you'd win so many trophies and and there's this glass um, cage that they built two of them one for the champion and one for the reserve and it literally was sort of silver painted silver and glass panels all the way around and if you won that your animal would go in there and it literally would be exhibit A and it was just when you went there and I wow. I, I first went there in in nineteen 19- Seventy-six, I think, and I just stood there in awe of looking at the animal that won that show. I can still—I've got pictures of it now. I still see that animal that won that show. Having been at the Birmingham Prime Stock Show the year before, uh, and then turning up to the second year, and then going on to this one, I realized this is just like fifteen steps above what the Birmingham um, show was, and and most of the Smithfield show would be full of cattle from Scotland, and the guys from Scotland were far superior in their in their ability to produce these animals and the ability to put the hair on these animals and to turn them out in this beautiful condition. And it just was the pinnacle really. And, and sadly the show, I, I stayed with the show for, for, well, I went to the show every year for the rest of its days. Um, did, determined to win it I sort of got worked my way up as we mentioned earlier on as a youngster worked my way up and eventually in 1992 I took a steer there that wasn't my own but for somebody else and, and uh, it won the supreme champion steer in the show and um, but it got beaten by two heifers and that, yeah that wasn't good enough for me so uh, the following year fortunate again I suppose by this time I was getting fairly good at the grooming job I was competing with the with the Scottish boys uh, of which the scottish cattle would win it most years and the following year i, uh, I i'd seen a steer down in wales so i've seen a guy it, it brought this animal to a show in england in, in the may of that year the show was in december um the may of that year and would i uh well i'd said could he t- would he take it to For this guy'd never been out of wales before he never certainly never been to london <laughs> uh, so i said would he would he take it so i sort of helped him out with grooming it and, and, and with um feeding it and what have you and the, event, the the animal eventually r- arrived at the smithford show completely untrimmed so his head nothing had been clipped at all i said just what should i do is do nothing just feed it and bring so it turned up at this show and by this time everybody's got all their animals already groomed and they're all walking and all just tarted them up and this thing is just like looks like a yak you know it's just completely covered in in hair and then i spent a couple of days grooming this animal out and then bit by bit the top showman they come and have a look and go looks like you might have something there and then Eventually it went on and through the group classes and then the you know, the, the breed classes and then the, uh, the weight age classes and the rest of that and eventually went on and became supreme champion of Smithfield. So I was, yeah, you know, that was my dream that I'd put in from 20 years earlier to win that more than 20 years. And then the year after, at a, a top showman, um, one of the Scottish guys had been taken ill with a with a bad back and he couldn't show his animals. And he phoned me. He said, "Can you fly to Aberdeen?" Which I don't know. It's two hour flight from from me and uh, fly to Aberdeen and come and, uh, and come and groom these animals for him What I showed him at Smithfield so I did and then that year we went there and he won actually won champion and reserve in the show which is the first time it had been done in 40 years for the same person exhibited wow. same exhibited to win champion and reserve so I, I ended up having four animals in the championship in three years which was uh, I don't think it's ever been done since but it it, it was, it still is and was the greatest pinnacle of any show ever um, and then I hung up my... my my clippers after that and i, I sold my, my grooming business at around about that time and i hung up my clippers and um i never really groomed another beast again it was like that was like, that's where you got to get to that's the best and how can you keep repeating that and then i went on to become gamekeeper turned poacher which is I suppose a, a British expression but i'm sure you understand what i mean where so i ended up becoming one of the the stewards at the show and then for the next 10 years i was steward at the show and became a council member a director of the show and Sadly, the show demised in 2004, the last show, and they pulled Earl down and turned it n- into a block of flats, and it's never been the same since. So uh, that's, that's Smithfield. It's, it, it was the it was best. <laughs> Chicago, it, I, I did a podcast saying Chicago, the greatest show on earth, and, and I think you know, Smithfield and Chicago, between them, were the greatest show on earth. Different reasons, slightly yeah. different, but uh, Chicago, the same. It moved to Louisville, still a great event I've never been to. I will be out there shortly. Um, but uh, never the same as Chicago, and, and uh, nothing the same as Smithfield.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess that's a good comparison too, because I mean Chicago is huge. We hear uh, not a lot of people know about it, but if you hear stories about the Chicago Stock Show and <clears throat> and that whole Chicago industry, that was a hub mm-hmm. uh, for many many years in the states. And you look at old photographs from the Chicago Stock Show, and it's they've got entire arenas filled up with cattle i mean it's it's not 10 10 per head you got like 50 or 100 in there mm. um it, it's pretty insane well, but yeah louisville's still a good show one
0: of, one of the reasons but one of the similarities between them is the smithfield originally would have <clears throat> been the smithfield meat market which was in the center of london in, in um ba 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 fuck what was called. now anyway the, it's in the center of of smithfield and that would have been the show would originally have been there and then when they put the smithfield show although it wasn't exactly in the same area of london it was about the the, the smithfield meat market and then then providing the showcase, the showcase or, or the exposition for you know the the, the market and of course Chicago was exactly the same. Where the Chicago was the Chicago stockyards, and, uh, massive that they were. And again, we've done a podcast on the Chicago stockyards, and uh, unbelievable numbers that just just blow your mind. Uh, and then the Chicago exposition or expedition, um, expedition, ex exhibition, Chicago exhibition was um, the, the showcase of, of of the beef that went through through that through that that um, that stockyards as well. So very similar, really, in in the, in yeah. the beings and the beginnings. It
1: is. Now, we have some differences between the States and the United, or even England, uh, in terms of our livestock, in terms of physical, in terms of how we show them, uh, uh, how they look, of course. Do you ever think there's going to be a time where we're on the same page, phenotypically, genotypically, kind of everything? Do you ever think we're, uh, the UK and and the states are ever going to be on the same wavelength in terms of livestock?
0: Short answer, yes. Long answer. Um, there is a, a huge difference within both countries between the animals that win the shows and the animals that can survive functionally. And I think you guys, the difference is bigger than... That's fair. You guys, the difference is probably bigger than we have in, in the UK... We show our animals, our beef animals. I'm just going to stick with beef animals on this. The dairies probably are different. But the beef animals, we show our animals with the understanding that it's all about killing out percentage, and it's about pounds of beef that you're going to get on a finer-boned animal for a killing out percentage. So if an animal weighs 700 kilos, you're going to get 400 pounds worth of beef, or 400 kilos worth of beef out of that, or 500 kilos of beef out of that, whatever it is. Where with you guys, it's, it's not about that. You guys, it's all about showing an animal that looks like it can produce. And live on on a um, on on a grass fed diet on about capacities yeah. functionality functionality right okay and you also mm-hmm. because you're not interested in the same way that we are on on production of beef you're also on amount of beef you guys are more interested in the quality of the beef you guys aren't interested in the muscle and the rump which we are because it still sells over here so there's a there's a difference between the animals and that has come from the way that the grading systems work with your side grading systems work with our side where people here will still buy lean beef which they'll mince or they'll or they'll do whatever with you guys you don't want to waste it's all about having having the high quality rib side of it so the, the, that's the, the difference between the two sides of beef the two types of beef is one thing but the difference actually between the show animals is that our animals look when they put an animal on a photograph or in a show ring from a photograph that or a photograph from a show ring should I say that the animal is right tucked up in its belly and it's standing there and it's got its head up and it's looking for some character and it's got its deep back end there that shows that it's got all this muscle you guys show them in a different way, where you're looking for a, a, a different line from the back of the head down to the top of the tail, which mm-hmm. down to the top of the tail, which is what we would call a, a gravy boat, and you guys probably wouldn't know what a gravy boat was. It's something that used to serve gravy, gravy, <laughs> years ago at a, kitchen, at, a, at a at a dinner table. But so that 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 yeah. curve, which we want flat lines, so we want a top a, a dead flat top line. You you guys want that curve, so but. The animals that I see and I have seen, and we'll see more of, because we're heading to our top lines and tails. Guys are coming to. Um, we, we've got a, a crew of our, of our a hardcore of our listeners, and and uh, from top lines and tails, so we're all going to Montana in September to uh, to look at some angus cows they're going to go on the montana cow tour angus cow tour and uh, see some animals over there and i'm looking forward to it it's been a while since i've been on farms in the u.s and i just believe that the animals that we're seeing at the shows compared to the animals we're seeing in the field are a different thing and i think that's in a lot of ways that's wrong because we're we're not seeing the true animals that you have there without actually going out there and looking at them and possibly the same way on our side so i think fundamentally the animals probably are a lot more similar than they appear on the photographs that we see from from yeah on the the
1: backdrop pictures yeah Yeah, the the backdrop pictures are probably changing my perspective a little bit but you're right they out in the field they probably are uh pretty similar in their type and kind uh you're gonna have to tell me when you when you go to montana i'd love to come up and hang out with you guys i've got a couple uh i've got like four college friends that live up there now so um there's plenty of places for me to stay so you've got to let me know when you do that certainly
0: will do certainly will do We're looking forward to it. I don't know how many of us yet but uh, we're just getting it organized now with a friend of mine who runs a an agricultural um, farm tour business and uh, yeah there could be anything up to 40 of us coming over there for for five or six days and then we're going to go across to the biggie in in, um, in Springfield to the exhibition there as well for that time of year and have a look at some've look at the show side of it as well so uh, do you know the big yeah. you know the biggie? The Big E. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't think the, so. E- Eastern, the Eastern exhibition. the Eastern. Oh, what's, the, what's the word for? I don't know. The Eastern. It's the biggest. Uh, oh yeah, the, the, the show in the east. The big exposition. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Uh, okay. And then the girls can go shopping as well. So that's that's kind of we're coming coming over for that. But yes, the, the difference between those is, is, do I see them getting together? Yeah, cattle wise, they're still guys. They're still smart guys here in in the. Uh, Angus business, particularly guys like John Elliott at Rawburn who are buying and still trading animals out of the US and Canada and bringing them into the UK, and there's still a market for those uh, in the UK. And likewise, there's there's embryos and semen going back their way as well. So the, the right guys breeding the right animals are still trade in genetics there's uh, no. great great guys like dave nichols that have come across nichols farms but one of the biggest angus breeders in the us and i know um john Elliott had been buying cattle from dave nichols recently and i think there's cattle going back the way from there so those guys have similar types of beasts and they're the top angus producers on respectively on probably both sides of the pond now. so yeah the cattle are similar but the way we turn them out is probably is different, and I, I I'm not as keen on I, I'm not keen on the way you guys have gone extreme with the way that they put the the high tail heads on the animals in the same way that you're not extreme that not right try this again in the same way that you guys are not keen on the fact that we 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 want for tucked up bellies and and deeper muscles so uh, from a showing point of view we do we are getting to to, to polar ends now which needs to come together
1: yeah. I agree. Um, now I will let you go here pretty soon. I'm I fine. Upper-
0: I, I, I'm, I'm here for another hour. Don't worry about me. You dissect this as long as you want to. I was going to sit and, and, and rush off, but I had my tea before we came on. So I, no, I'm good. I'm okay. enjoying myself. I'm enjoying myself. So you carry on.
1: Okay, good. Well, I, I was going to say, I think we're, I think we're actually getting away in the States of that high tail head. And like you were saying that grovey gravy boat back, mm. uh, I think we're, we were just trying to get them so soft-middled. Like you said, you guys are more tucked up through that center portion. Uh, we like them a little bit deeper-bodied. Um, and, and I think you're right. Like we said before, it's they're going to come to a head uh, at some point, maybe not in the show aspect, but just cattle in general, good cattle are good cattle wherever they live, right? Uh, so it, it, it's going to come to a head at some point.
0: It has changed and again something I've learnt through the podcast and the chatting. I've chatted with quite a few of your breeders over there. Uh chatted to to um uh cr- Craig Euden from the Dar Farm Lot—they They knock out forty thousand cattle at any one time in the, in the feedlot, big outfit. And the cattle they're putting through there are are similar, the right sort of cattle. But it seems to be portrayed in the pedigree business, and 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 it, it, I think this is more of a myth than actually the truth. But it seems to be portrayed in the pedigree business that uh, more of the animals in the U.S. or more of the beef in the U.S. US is produced from grass. And when you talk to the guys in the big feedlots in in both the US and Australia, is that uh, yeah, that's nice to have. You know, we're nice to have animals that can be that can can produce beef from grass. But the reality is, you know, ninety five percent of them come out of a feedlot. So we're looking at a different type of animal, and maybe the utopia that we can uh, provide grass fed beef to a nation who wouldn't be prepared to pay the price that grass fed beef actually costs. And that's something we're doing in in Scotland as well. Is there's huge promotion on not organic because that's a different thing again but on animals that are reared on grass gra- on, on land that can't produce anything else because in this day of food miles and carbon footprint and what have you there's land there that the only thing it can grow in, in Scotland is grass or fucking trees you know and trees aren't going yeah. to trees aren't going to feed the nation whereas you can grow grass and you can graze animals on that grass that will feed the nation and you can't grow corn or sugar beet or sweet corn or whatever you guys Whatever we want, else you want to grow? The only thing you can grow is grass. So you need animals that that can survive off that grass, and that's a a, a brilliant to have. And I think in Scotland that's more of a reality. In England, maybe not so much because the the, the land is better. But in the U.S., the idea of, of 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 animals producing purely off grass from the plains in 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 Montana or, 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 or oh, I'm running out of of places, but uh, Wyoming, uh, yeah, South yeah, Dakota, yeah all, you, those, yeah, all those, all those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all those places there that would have been you know, would have been plains that would produce grass nowadays they can earn more money producing corn so i think the the grass-fed animal is, is ideal uh, and it looks great by having this great big capacity that can graze lots of grass but the reality is most of the most of the beef actually is still coming from from corn fed would i be right i'm not sure
1: no you you are completely correct i mean i i it's an, it's interesting what people are trying to do over here in the States with regenerative, regenerative agriculture, uh, because grass-fed is a key component in that because it allows the cows to eat that grass. And then also while they're walking on the, on the dirt and stuff, they're recycling that carbon, uh, and those chemicals that are in the air and putting it back into the ground. Mm -hmm. So in that way, we can see. I could see more producers going to that if they want to um, maybe reduce their carbon footprint if, if that's a thing that they're worried about. Um, but like you said, 95% of cattle over here are raised off of corn, but that also could be due to the complete monopoly that we have over here um, in terms of our cattle industry, in terms of the market. Uh, there's there's about four companies that are controlling all the feedlots and all the ranchers over here, so uh, that's not very fun.
0: No, and, and again, if you, if you if you go back to listening to to the the podcast that I did with uh, Craig Uden, which we'd run over two podcasts, where we went so long because he got so much interesting stuff to say, um, and and a privately run um, um, feedlot, probably the biggest privately run feedlot in in the U.S. in, in there in Nebraska, um, but. If we want to go back to that idyllic let's produce reduce our carbon footprint, then that comes at a cost and again, that's something we've talked about to quite a few of our guys on this side and and your side for that matter, everybody wants to produce the carbon footprint, then we have to pay we have to pay the price for that we have to we can't just say yep. we, you guys have got to do that there has to be there is a cost to that and if that's that we go back to more grass fed beef because we're it, it it um we're putting the animals out there and we get in the recycle side side of it then uh, wonderful but uh, your price of beef has to go up simple
1: yeah yeah I um now I do love a good corn fed beef I do mm-hmm. love that marbling in a ribeye that big old chunk in the middle you can't you can't really get that with grass fed beef I mean you're not getting all that marbling in that in those steaks with grass fed which um. Some people like, some people don't like, but I I love that, all that marbling in there. Like you said, us Americans, we're so focused on our grading system, whether it be choice, prime, select, whatever. We are very, very focused on the highest quality meat possible. And it comes as a hindrance sometimes.
0: Canon, this is your um, your podcast. You should be asking the questions, not me. But I'm going to ask you what uh, how the Wagyu system is is or the Wagyu cattle are infiltrating uh, infiltrating into the high quality uh, beef end in in America. Is that something that you're aware of now? Is that becoming a topical subject?
1: It is actually a the a company that sponsors this my podcast. They're called United Harvest, and they're a meat e commerce meat sales company, okay. uh, and they sell. American Angus uh, Wagyu cross. Okay. Um, so I've, I've had a couple of those steaks. They're absolutely incredible. They fall off. They, I mean, you can cut them with your fork. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you can see a lot of these higher end restaurants are um, trying to get more Wagyu or Kobe beef. Um, I, I see more and more specialty beef being ingrained into those nicer restaurants or maybe some of these e-commerce meat sales companies that are popping
0: up. Certainly not something that's, that it, the farmers in the UK are jumping on. I know one or two that have had Wagyu and they're not anymore. And there's one company particularly who uh, who, who have been involved in other products and have got into the Wagyu and they've cornered the market for Wagyu beef and they are now um, putting that out through a lot of the top restaurants. And there's a huge uh, marketing campaign behind that and high-quality beef, but it isn't something that's commercially easily produced. And I just wondered how that's that's happening. I know oh, in Australia, yeah. I, Australia it's getting big, but I'm not quite sure what's happening with you guys. I don't
1: think it's, I, I mean, I don't know if it's even financially viable over here for a long period of time. I know that a lot of the wag, or I know this company that I work with, um, this cattle is born on the mainland of Hawaii. And then it's flown over. It's like six to nine months when they Get about mid stage, they're flown over to Northern California, mm-hmm. and then they're finished out in Northern California. But there's something about that soil in Hawaii that just helps them grow, or they they need that enrichment of the soil down there, or something. I don't know.
0: But this stuff is like two hundred dollars a kilo, right? But I mean, it it has to be because of of you said the 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 cost of producing it.
1: Exactly. No, it, you're going to get higher beef prices if it costs more to produce it and raise it. Yeah.
0: But two hundred dollars a kilo, two hundred dollar kilos, two hundred dollars a kilo. You can work, but even then, that puts an expensive steak in a restaurant. You know.
1: <laughs> it, it really does. I mean, it, it looks profitable from the outside if you can find a buyer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if you can find a, if you can find a decent um, place to send them when they're done, mm-hmm. it sounds like a good business plan. But sure. um you gotta. I think you have to have uh, the right connections with those high-quality restaurants, uh, and you got to know how to raise them. I mean, it's. I, I don't think they're just like Angus or Charlet or or, or Shorthorn or whatever. I mean, I, I think they're a little finicky sometimes. It's a specialist market, isn't it? Exactly. What kind of wine are you drinking?
0: Uh, I started off on on a on a white local wine. To here, I mean, I'm near Bordeaux, so we're very lucky. We get decent wines out of Bordeaux. And, that is lucky. Uh, and then I've got a, a red. My wife just brought me a red, which I haven't started yet. Which is a Bergerac, which is in our local district here. Which some some is good, as some not. But I'm sure she's brought me the good stuff. So yeah, I'm I'm on both at the moment. But uh, <laughs> beautiful. That's fine. Um,
1: I I want to dip into um, your pedigreed software business, uh, and you you were very general in your uh, description of that. So if you could describe what what it is software wise that you built for uh, a pedigreed system.
0: Yeah, the when when I sold my grooming business, I sold them to a company called Richie Tag and and uh, they made ear tags and they're global, they were global I knew American I think originally. And um they carried on supplying the grooming equipment, my grooming equipment. So I worked with them for 2 or 3 years selling the uh, marketing, running and marketing their running their exhibition units so we two exhibition units we do all the agricultural shows and supplying all the equipment and and, and all their, their range of products which was quite versatile uh in the meantime i started breeding pedigree texel sheep and uh, when my pet texel sheep i just got into computers sort of a bit earlier than that time and i wanted a computer software program to manage and look after my texel sheep and look at the genetic side of it rather than just the numbers side if you like so i wanted mm-hmm. something that would map the pedigrees going back the way and something that would if i could put all the, the weights in there it would work you know it would calculate the you know the, the weight gains through various animals and it was only a fairly small flock that i had but so i looked at various things and i couldn't find anything and then i spoke to one or two and they said well there's nothing out there so i thought well there's got to be a market there for this and having spent my last five or six years selling products to pedigree farmers across the country pedigree sheep farmers and cattle farmers and and horse breeders and everybody else across the country I already had this ready-made client base I suppose when I said to them would you you like something like this and they all said well that's a good idea so I paid a guy to I knew nothing about computer coding I paid a guy to uh, come and write a program I sort of sat down with a piece of paper and said I wanted to do this this and this and he went away and at thirty pounds an hour, which was a lot of money back in the in, in, in early nineties, thirty pounds an hour. He went away and wrote this thing, and he got sort of three quarters of the way through it. And I'm into twenty-five, thirty grand um, paying this guy, and then so he came up with this product, which kind of worked. Uh, it did all the things I wanted it to do, but would it do the other things I wanted it to do? No. And I sort of ran out of money to pay him any more, so I just studied. What he had written in the way of code, and I, I must have a mathematical brain somewhere because I taught myself to write computer code. So I kind of got into the coding side of it, and, and trial and error, a lot of screaming. Basically, I, I eventually started took this program to where it needed to be, and then I started selling it to my my fellow uh, breeders. But the the USP with it was that we would go to the I would go to the pedigree breed societies. It was all sort of sprung up from Come from different angles, I suppose. Some of them from a hundred years ago and more. These little offices they had, where they would have all the records for pedigree Texel sheep or Southdown sheep or Angus cattle, whatever it was. And they would all they would all have data in their computer systems that they could um, provide uh, into the system that I was selling. So somebody would come to me and they want a pedigree program about. The, Angus cattle, and I would actually provide them the program with all their animals already pre-installed in it before it arrived at their desk. And that, that to me, was harder than actually writing the, 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 the program or designing the program itself, because I had to learn... Uh, a lot of skills to, to to interpret the data that came to me in a thousand different formats from a thousand different places. So the guys would actually have a pedigree program, and then harder still was trying to educate people how to use a fucking computer, because half of them had never even seen one before. So I'd spend hours and hours and days and days on the phone to people who hadn't even. They thought it was a great idea, but they didn't realize that they knew absolutely nothing. You know, they'd buy a computer and literally turn it on and expect all this stuff to appear on the screen. <laughs> and
1: of course it, Where's the software? It, it didn't even work that way. So
0: you're spending your first day, and and sort of part of it, I'd give them online training and realize this just wasn't viable because I was just spending hours and hours and hours and hours on the phone to people all the time, and it wasn't doing myself or my marriage or anything else in my life any good. So it was a great idea. So I... I, I um. I sold, I suppose, having sold about sort of fifty or sixty of these, of these programs, I realized that I needed something else to supplement my my living out of this. And and having learnt the basics of of writing computer code and and extracting data, I kind of got into the, the the mainstream industry as a contractor. Palomine was a computer contractor, and I got in there and realized that I was actually probably smarter than a lot of the contractors because I was an kind of entrepreneurial spirit. and so I'd go into companies and say, well, you've got all this data stuck in here. I can extract that data out and turn it into something that you can use. So I became a, a data analyst purely by default or by accident as much as anything else. And I kept the <coughs> agricultural software company running then for another two or three years. And and, and the one worked well with the other because I could sort of mix the two in together. But I probably put four, 500 programs of those, maybe more, out into agricultural, into pedigree breeders around about the UK. And I wrote... There were forms that they could write so they could put all their animals and hit the button and it would send the form directly into the the breed society or print it out and they could mail it into the breed society in the same format that they had on their um on the paper and all this will be alien to you canon because nowadays you go online and just hit the button and send all the all the pedigree entries in and it's just it's commonplace <laughs> but but this is completely before all that happened and we were getting into yeah, the, the, getting to the internet age then where i could get people to email a file to so they could hit the button and they'd email the file with all their calf registrations on for this 100 cars for this year that press the button and it would email them in and uh and the guys at the other end would say thanks very much and then they'd print it out and type it all back into their machine. again. So it kind of kind of, got <laughs> <kind of, laughs> kind of halfway there but not quite. Eventually we got it sort of seamless and I worked with, with um, uh, there's an outfit here, well with Blup, you'll know of Blup, what you guys called, um, what do you guys call it, it's not Blup, you call it something different, uh, the the you call EPDs, is that right? We call them EVBs? EPDs, yeah. EPDs. EPDs, we call them EBVs. So the 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 system that worked with that, where when you they put all the animal weights in, so the guys would go and there would be a third party company who would go to on farms and measure weigh all these animals and measure the various things and then pour all that data into their computer and then I it would feed into mine and then I could feed it back into those and we got that thing seamless enough that we could send files backwards and forwards to each other but it was it was long before its day and uh of course and likewise with my company before that um i got to a stage where i wasn't really managing it to the point where i want on growing it to the point i wanted to do when somebody came along and wanted to buy that so i sold that one as well so i've sold uh, that was the second company i've sold and wouldn't say i made millions out of it if i'd kept it and carried it on going there are companies out there now who are better than i am but uh um it, it ran its course, and I really enjoyed it. but it was it was it was a huge learning curve and and something I'm quite proud of that I taught myself then to be fluent in four or five languages in computer code.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're um you're very entrepreneurial. <laughs> and um, I, I like that because I think that I am the same way. Um, but it takes a special kind of person to develop that. and, I mean, like you said, you're you're putting your own money into it to build the code. The guy builds the code for thirty grand or whatever. It's not really like what you want. So you're having to do ten times more work than you are expecting to do. I mean, there's the thing about entrepreneurs is you're doing more than just creating the idea and watching it grow. <clears throat> I mean you have, you're gonna have to maintain that through the entirety of the process or until you sell it. Uh, but I really, I I appreciate that about you, Andy. I think you're, I think you're an entrepreneurial mind, um, And I I don't think it'll be your last company that you sell.
0: (laughs) I was told that uh, um, what would you do if you um, were given your life over again? And I said I would do exactly that. I'd make all the mistakes that I made the first time. And that's kind of how you go, really, isn't it? And uh, Yeah. Yeah. You've got got to enjoy your life, haven't you? And and, and a lot of stress, I went with it. And, okay, it cost me a marriage in the finish. And maybe that's not the point. But there there are parts of your life you think, Why the fuck am I doing this? I ran a crop-spraying business at the same time for a while, which... I'd run two um, crop sprayers and we'd run those. uh, We we don't get the weather, you guys get down there, so you get only maybe 100 days a year you could run the crop sprayer when the wind wasn't blowing, it wasn't raining. And when the weather was right, I'd get two guys in there and they'd drive all day and then I'd I'd drive back from Aberdeen, like an eight-hour drive, and then I'd jump on the crop sprayer and I'd drive all night. And I had one of the first mobile phones, so I'd be on my mobile phone you know, in, in daytime but I was on there ordering products and, and, and various things. I mean, obviously, it didn't have computer capacities back then, so I was just trying to do... Yeah, I was trying to do too much, I think, and, and, and make make everything work, but I enjoyed it all. I enjoyed it all, and, and I left the farm with nothing and, and made something of myself. So I, cause I suppose I, yeah. somewhere along the line, I should be proud of that.
1: I think so. Tell me about all these books that you've published. You're... It, Along with everything that we've just talked about, you're also an author, um, and you've ventured into writing children's books. You've written about um, uh, the li- or just the ag industry, the livestock industry. You're writing about uh, breeds of sheep. What makes you want to put pen to paper? Uh,
0: again, I think I, as I realized at one stage that I'd become what's called a, a technical author. So a technical author is somebody who writes about... I would go into... This is now evolving on from my uh, my time in the livestock industry, and I moved on, and I moved away from agriculture, I will admit that. And then we, I had two sons to go through boarding school, very expensive, um, and I needed money. And I, I I got into a business that was very lucrative in, in the, the start of the millennium or the end of the 90s. Uh, and I became that I would... What I said earlier on, sort of um, on... I could work out data and, and see where things fit in. I would go into companies and troubleshoot. So I'd go into blue chip companies and I would go in there with a, a, a blank piece of paper and I would look at all the legacy systems that they had. Very often these companies had bought this company down the road and that company, and then they would be end up with been 20 companies all within one shell, if you like. and then that, in that one shell, all their legacy computer uh, software coming from this side and that side. This is before the days of Oracle and all these guys sort of took it all over. And I would... I would look at all these different systems and then I would put together a document together for them with saying, this is the selection of data that we had and this is what I think you could do. And then based on that, maybe you should look at buying this system or that system. So it was a business analyst, data analyst skill that I that I evolved. And I realized I was writing technical documents and I was spending all my time writing technical documents about things I didn't really like and about people I didn't really want to be with. And uh, I was jumping on a train and traveling to London and and, and flying to wherever and uh, in a suit and, and I'd I'd feed my sheep in the mornings and go and and um, you know with my Wellingtons on and then take my overalls <laughs> off and stick my three piece suit on and jump on the train and 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 to people about business stuff. But I didn't. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And I did it for for enough years to put my boys through boarding school. I made earn a lot of money doing it. I, I would uh, happily say, um, well I won't I won't be ashamed of should I say. And then one day I just thought you know what I'm going to write. I might as well write about something I like. So. Uh, uh, um, a flash moment. What's the word? A Eureka moment, I think you call it. When I was on the train, yeah. on the train one day, and he thought, you know, I don't like you fuckers anymore. And it's just like I went into the office the next day, and pff, my contract's finished. I'm not, I'm not doing. It. It wasn't quite like that, to be fair, because I moved to Amsterdam, and I was I was working in Amsterdam, and I would separated from my wife, and then I met my lovely wife Wendy. Now we've been with for for sixteen, eighteen years now, and and. We, we we were together and I was working in Amsterdam earning, I wouldn't tell you what I was earning but it was a ridiculous amount of money for what I was doing but thank you very much, I didn't argue uh, and I just thought I had, I just, I didn't want to do that either and I just we sold up, moved to France and uh, and I thought well I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about my experiences in the, in the livestock industry and I sort of rekindle, I suppose around about the time Facebook came back in rekindled a friendship of a sort of few of the people that I'd lost over the previous 10 or 15 years and wrote a, a story about a cow that was destined from scotland that was destined to go to the royal smithfield show and, and her experiences in that time were my experiences from the the years that i'd had to go into smithfield show and that was sort of that book that i thought probably wanted to be written and i put it out there and a few people said it was good hey out and sold a lot of copies and everybody was happy about it, it was called the right color look it up the right color by andy fraser
1: i i did see that yeah i did
0: see that when i was looking you up i saw that i saw that book uh, and um, from then I decided, well, children's story. Somebody said it wasn't really an adult story; it was more because it was written from the point of view of the cow. Um, it was kind of like Babe uh, and meets uh, yeah. Black Beauty, and so it was written from the, the point of view of the cow. So uh, I, uh, I, somebody said, well, what, that's more of a children's story. So I thought, well, why not make it a children's story? So I rewrote it as a children's story, which is called About a Cow, and then uh, I wrote four books in that, around that same cow character, which were great fun to write, and I could still hear myself laughing as I wrote them. And I always think if you laugh when you write something, somebody will laugh when they read it, and, and I, I I stand by that to this day. And then I wrote a few other books, one one about a pig called um, The Amazing Adventures of Oinky Grub, which I've just recently revisited and uh, and narrated. And, uh, again, great fun writing those books and, and absolutely hilarious times. And I enjoyed it, but I realised there's no money in this... Uh, for the time and effort it takes to write a book, which takes a huge discipline, and any- yeah. yourself or anybody out there listening, it, it, to write a book, they say there's a book in every one of us, and there is. And writing a book is dead easy; it's the easiest thing in the world. But it does take a lot of discipline and a lot of time. And 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 don't exp- Well, my mantra is: a, write about something you know; b, don't do it for the money; and c, never write dry- never write when you're drunk. Those that's that's my mantra, and. Uh, Anybody wants to live by that one you <laughs> carry on, but it does take a lot of, <laughs> a lot of time and don 't expect to get rich doing it, so I did that, and then, having done that, then there were other books out there that came to, came to me, and I thought well i 'd write that and I'd write that, and then I wrote a, uh, my own memoirs, two or three. yeah, it, it ended up um quite a long process over the next ten years. My wife was working, I was here in France, renovating this big old farmhouse which i 'm sitting in the middle of now, a big pile of a house um, all these bedrooms renovated upstairs, which nobody lives in apart from the, the spiders, and enjoyed doing all that, and uh, and so I just wrote, and I just literally would write five or six hours every day, and I wrote, you know, I've written 44 books, I think, in all, which is too many. <laughs> Jesus, that's a lot of books. Yeah. That's a lot of words. I was told one day a seminar, a guy said, how to sell a million books, write a million books, how to sell a million copies, (laughs) write a million books, and then sell one of each to your mom. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And when I started this podcast,
1: I was like, it's going to be great when my mom is the only listener to this. (laughs) And it turns out my mom doesn't listen to my podcast. I think she's the only family member that doesn't listen to it but uh that's fine that's fine mom if you're listening which you're not uh i still love you hi canons mom we love you too (laughs) i love it well uh andy this has been great um i i would love to have you on again in the future i'm sure we can i'm sure we could keep a conversation going Mm -hmm. apart from this conversation of course i uh i like you a lot and i'd be willing to have you on again for sure thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down with me. Um,
0: Canon, I I, I appreciate... I think it's the first time that I've actually been interviewed on somebody else's podcast. It's quite nice to be interviewed rather than being the interviewee, and I suppose I appreciate being able to tell my story rather than just adding snippets of my life into other people's stories, which is generally what I do. So, uh, yeah, I I hope you get some good listeners to this, and uh, I'd like people likewise to, to... dial into our top lines and tales podcast which i think is interesting and we do try and do global and obviously growing our audience on your side and likewise i'll make sure that uh some of our listeners uh get told all about your your great podcast yeah yeah top lines
1: and tales uh get it wherever podcasts are offered right uh, apple podcast spotify all that jazz um and yeah go leave a rating. I saw that you only have a couple ratings on Apple Podcasts. We need to bump that number up. so oh. go go leave a rating on top lines and tails, rate it five stars, leave a comment.
0: See but, um, see yeah, yeah that, that's why you, you, you were t- 30 odd years younger than me. See, so you know all about that shit. I had no idea about those, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I slack off I slack off on this deal but um, but no worries. Andy, thanks a lot. If
1: you ever need an intern, uh, a 25 year old intern. Uh, you let me know because I'll, I'll come to Europe in a heartbeat. So uh, you let me know if you
0: need me. I, I know a few guys who know a few guys who know a few guys. So uh, you never, know. <laughs> you ask me, there'll be somebody I know that knows something. So that's all I can True. say.
1: True. All right, Andy. Well, um, Hey, stay on the call for a little bit after, but I'll just, I'll end it here. Okay. Um, Andy, thanks again for coming back on. We'll have you on again here in the near future.
0: Karen, that's been superb, and I wish you well with your podcast, and uh, we'll stay in touch. time's
1: limited, so you must listen carefully. Just a un- unique story, a unique human being. He's lived a hell of a life. He's 60 years old. He's got 50 years left, guaranteed, especially with his diet. Uh, come on. I mean, they say wine adds years onto your life, right? He's at least going to live till he's under ten. Come on. Andy, if you're listening, that's that's what you got to pull through to, bud. 110, all right. That's what we're that's what we're banking on right now. Don't know why I got on that tangent, but I hope you guys liked it. And I want to have more of these stories on. I want to have more stories than just like the local guy goes to county fairs, um, and raises hogs, raises cattle, blah blah blah. I want to have some unique stories to share with you guys um, to kind of open up your perspective on this industry it's not as so small as you think it is it can be very large in some ways um and worldly ways (laughs) i hate that i made that joke okay well come back next week i'll have another episode for you i'm going two weeks consecutively right now i i hope my loyal listeners that are still listening to this uh still listening to the outro shout out to you guys I, I'll give you guys presents at some point, I promise. But two weeks consecutively, uh, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Me. I, I was hoping to get here. So I'll have another episode for you again next week. We're going to keep it rolling. Check out Cattle Pros. Check out Legendary Mindset. Check out The Keeper Pin. If you like rabbits, check out Best in Show. And it's not a part of the Bear Media umbrella. But go check out Top Lines and Tails because, because it is a great podcast and Andy is creating some incredible content on that podcast feed. I love you guys. Goodbye.